Greetings and welcome to the Animal Wellness Podcast, the official podcast of Animal Wellness Action. Hi, I'm your host, Joseph Grove. On this show, we talk about animals from the perspective of people who care about them and have the ability to improve their lives by influencing culture and supporting laws and regulations accordingly. To stay up to date with all of our news and information, subscribe to this podcast, receive our free newsletters and more, visit animalwellnessaction.org. Wayne Paselli and Marty Irby are both normally with me. Wayne is on Capitol Hill today getting some important things done. Marty is with us. He is the executive director and the chief lobbyist for us in D.C. We're also joined by Fred Hudson, the founder and CEO of the U.S. Harness Racing Alumni Association. He has authored numerous books and hosts the Harness Racing Alumni Show. He is a retired world champion harness racing trainer who was instrumental in the passage of the Horse Racing uh, and Safety Integrity Act. Marty, because we're talking about horses, I do want to ask uh, you about the passing of Queen Elizabeth II. We didn't discuss this in our pre-show notes, but I know that this has been an, uh, you know, an interesting uh, week or so for you since her, her death, a lot of emotion for you. Yes, no, thank you, Joe. And I'll be honest, it's been a sad few days for me. I probably burst out crying and dozen times or so. I have an op-ed being published by NBC News National today about the Queen leading up to the silent procession to Westminster uh, this afternoon. And, you know, she was very special to me. My dear friend, Monty Roberts, who we've had on the show several times, has worked with her since 1989 when she first learned of his principles and commissioned him a member of the Royal Victorian Order to spread these principles around the globe, more humane, training methods that are nonviolent in nature that actually get the horse to want to do something instead of trying to force a horse to do something. The queen loved horses. I have no doubt aside from her family and her country more than anything in the world. I have seen so many articles about the Welsh corgis. Um, but when you really look at the history on this, she definitely loved the Welsh corgis. Um, horses were really her passion. She was asked as an 11 year old little girl, before her uncle abdicated the throne and before she knew she would ever become queen, what she would like to be when she grew up. And she said, I should like to be a horse. So she was very passionate about them. She owned the winner of the Royal Ascot Estimate in 2013. It's the first time in history that the British monarch has actually won the Royal Ascot, that race. And if you watch the video, you'll see the biggest smile on her face that you've ever seen. Of course, she was with us on all of these equine issues, especially on the soaring issue and doping of racehorses. She wanted to see that. I know she was very, very pleased to hear about the passage and enactment of the Horse Racing Integrity and Safety Act in 2020. And I know she has read in depth the details about soaring and what we're dealing with there. I prepared a seven-page document for her in 2020 that Monty asked me to put together called a paradigm shift, basically my life story. And I know that she read every word. And as a result of that, I one day on an August evening, rainy August evening in 2020, found a special package at my doorstep marked Royal Mail from Windsor Castle and in it an award and a certificate of recognition from Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II for my work to protect horses. So she was very special to me. Um, I've, I've really, you know, been upset about her death and passing it, but Monty has been especially upset. So I hope everyone will keep him, his family, and the royal family in their prayers. And please know what great work she did for the horses. There's never been another world leader that I know that's done more for horses in their lifetime. And imagine that she is most likely the most prominent figure and significant human being that has lived in the last century. 
Yeah, I don't disagree with a single syllable you said. Um, I hope to have Monty on the show again soon. He was a bit reticent when it came to sharing anecdotes of his work with the Queen during her life, but I believe he may be more comfortable talking about some of his uh, personal interactions uh, with horses with him. Uh, so our listeners can uh, be watchful for that episode. I'm, I'm really looking forward to it and, and hope uh, it comes to pass. The topic is horses. Um, I was asked the other day by a friend to go to the fall meet of Churchill Downs. And then he remembered what I do for a living and suspected I might have a um, disinclination to go to Churchill Downs for their fall meet. Um, we didn't go into it, but uh, it's no secret that horse racing is not always good for horses. In fact, it's quite often the contrary. Between 2017 and 2021, 29 states have tallied at least 4,000 uh, racehorse fatalities. Horses begin training or are already racing before their bodies are prepared for the stress. Some drugs weaken their bones. Others mask their pain, causing them to perform when natural pain signals would tell them otherwise. Between 700 and 800 racehorses are injured or die uh, every year with a national average of about two breakdowns for every 1,000 starts. According to the Jockey Club's Equine Injury Database, nearly 10 horses died every week at American racetracks in 2018. It is that history of death and destruction that prompted Marty and our guest, Fred Hudson, to be among many others who worked incredibly hard. Uh, to get past, uh, in December of 2020, the Horse Racing Integrity and Safety Act, also known as HISA. That law finally took effect on July 1st of this year. It was supported by all three Triple Crown races and has the support of the Coalition for Horse Racing Integrity, which includes the Jockey Club, the Breeders' Cup, Keeneland Racecourse, the Thoroughbred Owners and Breeders' Association, and many other organizations as well. Um, Fred comes to us with a background in harness racing. I want to get his perspective on horse racing generally, as well as Marty, what HISA means, where it is. But, but first, Fred, for our listeners who may not be familiar with what harness racing is, get us up to speed on what harness racing is and what its status is as a competition in the United States. Okay. I thank, first of all, Joseph and Marty, thank you for inviting me on the show. Um, now, what is harness racing? As Marty knows, when we were lobbying in Washington, D.C., uh, I had done lobbying before I teamed up with Marty. And when I, I was in one meeting and the person basically said to me, said, OK, well, that's really nice. And you made a really good speech here. But what is harness racing? And I was totally shocked because I just assumed that people knew what harness racing is. So from, from that point on, I started explaining what harness racing is before I ever started any conversations. And Marty can uh, remember, it's like our first meeting that we were going in together. I said, Marty, I got to tell them what harness racing is. And him and Hal and um, uh, what should we walk down? They both looked at me. And I was just like, what? <laughs> so anyhow, they found out real quick that nobody knows what harness racing is. Um, harness racing is a sport where we sit in back of the horses. Harness racing is conducted in, power mutual racing is conducted in 16 states. Um, the purse structure is um, 1.5 billion. And there's half of, excuse me, the handle is 1.5 billion. And the purse structure is half a billion. Uh, that is what's wagered on harness racing. Um, when you go back to the oh, 1960s, 
uh, harness racing was on par with the thoroughbred racing, uh, especially at Aqueduct, uh, Belmont, and uh, Roosevelt and Yonkers raceways, where if they if the thoroughbreds did three million uh, in handle, harness racing was doing around two million. Um, that has drastically changed um, over the last 20, 30 years due to a terrible management on the harness racing side. Uh, the sport is not enforcing the drug rules. Uh, the drugs are running rampant in the sport. And HISA is the sport's only chance. And the leaders of the harness racing of USTA, United States Triton Association, are fighting tooth and nail against HISA. Um, I'm on the side, I'm with Marty. I am 100% in support of HISA, and it is harness racing's only chance of survival, in my opinion. So thank you for that, Fred. I appreciate it. Um, uh, and really, they look like uh, miniaturized or very slimmed down chariots. Um, it, it, it's kind of like chariot racing. I'm thinking Ben-Hur and Gladiator <laughs> and all that. Does, does the sport, is is it a, a traditional continuance of chariot races? Is that where we might find its uh, history? Possibly. Uh, you could, you know, in the chariot races, they're standing up. But uh, harness racing, like back in, the, they actually raced in wagons, and it basically on the back streets of uh, two guys, two farmers would be going down the road, and they'd have a buggy race or a chariot race against each other. Uh, chariot race, I'm using that term. But they'd have a, <laughs> a buggy race against each other on the back roads. Um, it was a, really a gentleman's sport back around the turn of the century. Um, they did parades down um, New York City. Um, all the, um, the aristocrats would basically have their standard bred horses that they were, were actually racing. Um, they were at clubs all over the country. Uh, the New York Driving Club, you know, they basically lost their track in Manhattan. And that was how Yonkers Raceway got built. Uh, one of the members of the uh, club, New York Driving Club built Yonkers Raceway. And that's a real interesting story because when he built Yonkers Raceway, he actually went broke building the track. And um, when the track first opened in 1898, um, they, they didn't even pay, they couldn't even pay the purse structures out because he was so broke. And um, he mysteriously died of an illness um, in 1899. But um, I personally think that he committed suicide uh, because he was so far in debt. But I'm getting into a different story, but the one good portion of this story is a guy named uh, Frank Farrell. Um, he basically won Yonkers Raceway in a, in a bit, not a, a bidden. They were bidden on the track because they were in debt, and so this was to straighten it out. The judge uh, overruled him on the bid, so they wouldn't let him have the track. Well, Frank Farrell, what he did with that money that he had bought Yonkers Raceway with, which was 200 and some odd thousand. He bought a baseball team in Baltimore called the Baltimore Orioles. He moved them to New York. They became the uh, New York Highlanders. And in 1910, they changed their name to the New York Yankees. Fascinating. Well, there you go. That, that's a story that many people don't know. <laughs> I, I, I certainly didn't, didn't know that. Um, and let me ask you this, Fred. How does the harness racing horse differ from the thoroughbred racehorse? What, what's the difference in the kind of animals, the horses? How well, are they they're different, different? Different, different breeding. Um, our our breed is you know the standard bred. The, thorough, the thoroughbreds are the thoroughbreds. Mm -hmm. uh, we all come from the original three sires. Um, 
with the harness racing, you know, we race on two gates to trot and the pace. Um, and we go speeds of, you know, about 35 miles an hour. Uh, I guess the thoroughbreds go about 40 miles an hour. Uh, we start from a moving starting gate over here in the United States. Uh, most of our races are a mile long. Uh, we are what you call a jockey. We call a driver. Um, and, you know, like I said, we sit in the back of the horses. So mm-hmm. Yeah, I might, I might add too, Joseph, just to interject a little, you know, one thing that is very different, I think, um, I, I think Freddie will agree from the thoroughbreds and harness racing is that on the track deaths are nowhere near the same. There are far, far fewer horses that die on the track and have these breakdowns in the harness racing world. But now where we see a lot of the abuse is, of course, in the drugging and what I hear more about than anything is off the track, standard breads, harness racing horses going to slaughter and ending up in kill pens. And these are the horses that we're trying to stop from ending up in Canada and Mexico and on someone's plate in China with a safe act. So I don't know, um, you know, Fred, if you want to add to that, but uh, I just wanted people to know, you know, we talk about a lot of things, but um, the horses are not dying in harness racing on the track near at the rate that they are with thoroughbreds. Yeah. yeah mo- most of our horses that end up in the slaughter, um, how, how pipe, kill pens, whatever you want to call them, they end up coming there from the Amish. And so a lot of um, our trainers, um, when they are end owners, when the horses' careers are over or when they're finished, they end up selling the horses to the Amish. And then the Amish keep the horse and they work them to death for five or six years. And then they discard them to the kill pens and to the slaughter line. Uh, one of the things that I always try to work on, I'm trying to, you know, circumvent that the horse is going to the uh, Amish and trying to do something else with them. But having owners basically before they, uh, when they're looking to end the horse's career, to find an alternative means to that, uh, different owners and stuff like that, and intercept them before they get into these uh, bad situations. Yeah, there's there's a, a great connection. Um, I'm not sure that we could say this about the recent horse in Manhattan, but we've we've been doing a lot of work on the carriage horse issue lately. And I do think that a lot of these horses off the track that end up with the Amish potentially end up as carriage horses in New York. And while we are against the use of horses and horse-drawn carriages in a major city like Manhattan, we aren't against harness racing. Um, you know, there's a time and a place for everything. The big issue with the carriage horses is the condition of the horse and the smoke and the asphalt and all that sort of thing. So there, there is a connection there, but I wanted to be clear with our discussion where we stand on both of those issues. Yeah, correct. And I, I would assume a lot of the carriage horses come from the harness racing industry uh, just because, you know, they're already broken to harness. Right. That, that's, that's my personal opinion. I don't have any, I don't have any proof to prove that. So. Right. So, so Fred, the HISA law took effect July. Uh, so we're we're halfway through September. How is it going so far, in your opinion? Uh, I I think that they have a lot of opposition. Uh, I think I, the, you know the um, Horsemen's Benevolent Protection Association. I think every one of their chapters has uh, filed a lawsuit. Uh, the United States Trotting Association has filed a uh, lawsuit. Um, for the most, you know, they challenge the unconstitutionality, and I guess like. When this bill went was passed through Congress, it was actually marked right there that it would pass constitutionality challenges. Uh, so basically, they're just trying to um, they're trying to delay the whole process, and they're just trying to keep the status quo. 
Uh, that's my opinion, and they don't want to enforce the rules on the drugs because they probably feel that it just it's so widespread that it probably caused so much damage and put a bad name to the sport, not realizing that their stand is putting a worse name to the sport. <laughs> yeah, when you read some of those statistics about horse deaths and, and racetrack breakdowns, uh, it's hard to imagine anything being able to worse besmirch the name of the sport. Marty, in addition to your roles with our organization, you're also the editor of Heisa Watchdog. Org, a site you uh, created to um, make sure that the public or at least the individuals in the industry with a proximity to the horses had a means by which to report violations and by which they could also stay abreast of developments with enforcement of the law. What are you seeing from your perspective regarding the early days of HISA implementation? Well, definitely very challenging. I think the biggest issue we all have on any side of this is that the new entity, the Horse Racing Integrity and Safety Authority created by the Act, um, was intended to contract with USADA, the U.S. Anti-Doping Agency. We've talked about this on many podcasts before the law actually passed to do the drug testing because USADA is the gold standard in Olympic sports. They do testing all over the world. They caught Lance Armstrong and have so much credibility. And unfortunately, the board that was appointed to oversee HISA chose to um, go a different route. They chose to not contract with USADA. I personally think that was a major, major mistake. I really do worry about the effectiveness of this law because we've worked on the Horse Protection Act of 1970 and the Wild Horse and Burrow Law of 1971 for so long and seen them fail. This is the first new legislation to protect horses enacted in half a century. We don't want to see this law end up like those two laws. We want to see it succeed. So that's challenge number one. Um, as far as our new website, I do hope people will check it out, heistawatchdog.org. We established it basically because they didn't contract with USADA. And I don't think we would have established it if they had. Um, I was talking to the new CEO, Lisa Lazarus, of the organization some months ago. In the first conversation I had with her between the two of us, she said, I hope you'll continue to be a watchdog over us. And that really is what gave me the idea to do the website. Freddie was very helpful in getting us uh, to establish that and work with us, as well as Joe Gorchek, who has been on the podcast before, uh, former uh, head of the Indiana Racing Commission. And I think what we're trying to do is press for the strictest and most stringent enforcement of the law while also maintaining a system of checks and balances. So just as an example, um, no one was really talking about transparency with HISA. And if you look at the racing commissions that are out there today, certain things they're required to post online. Um, HISA, the new entity, was basically not giving much of anything in the way to the public, even the people who are involved in the sport, animal groups, of what they were doing. Um, it was pretty much kind of like a backroom smoke-filled closed door deal from, from most people's view. So um, Joe Gorchek and I sent a letter asking for some information. They did not uh, comply with our request. And Joe wrote an op-ed um, for the Pollock Report that's a mainstream uh, equine industry and horse racing industry publication Ray Pollock has had for many years, and then went on their show and started talking about transparency. And we raised the issue. And as a result of that, at the Jockey Club's annual roundtable in Saratoga a month ago, um, it was the primary topic of conversation. And Lazarus spoke about transparency and said that they are going to be more transparent. I do hope that we see that. I haven't seen much in the way since then. 
Um, but we're going to continue to work with them. I had a good meeting with her there, got to meet her in person. And I am encouraged that um, things are going to change, but we're absolutely without a shadow of a doubt going to have to hold their feet to the fire. Very good. Uh, Fred, are you worried that with the the great attention that is on thoroughbred racing, that when it comes to HISA, harness racing may fall through the cracks, that you may not get the benefits the law is intended to, po- uh, to provide? Well, I, I actually have, am working with um, many, te- many of the leaders from harness racing, and we have been working with HISA. We were working with USADA. Marty's actually sat in on a couple of our meetings. We have some of the leading trainers uh, that have been on board. Um, and then we have like uh, John Campbell. Uh, he's been on board. Steve Stewart, Andy Cohen, uh, Jeff Garral, uh, Jason Settlemore, uh, we've, uh, Gordon Banks. We've all been working with um, HISA and, uh, to basically make sure that harness racing will be included. Uh, the what we understand right now, states will probably opt harness racing in before the United States Trot and Association does. And we're looking at for sometime in 2023 um, for harness racing to be opted in. And we're preparing. So like there, there's a difference in the breeds and stuff like that. Our, our horses race like 30 times a year, where these thoroughbreds race like seven times a year. So some of the medications, uh, withdrawal times have to be a little bit different and adjusted for us. But pretty much there's not a lot to change. Uh, so we can pretty much race under the same medication rules. And the state of Kentucky actually does, and they actually do so up in Canada. So we're working on that, and I think I think we'll transition over there fine. Um, and the other the other thing I want to talk about, we have um, you know last uh, in 2020, you know, all the arrests and indictments took place, and so now that's been moving along, and the trials have been going. And of the 31 people that were indicted and arrested, there's only two left that are going to trial. Everyone else has either been has plead, pleaded guilty and they've taken two to trial and they found them guilty. And so, you know, this is and we are expecting more arrests around the corner any day now. And I think most of it's going to be on the harness side. And I think that we're going to have possibly 50 or more people arrested. And I see this happening very quickly. Marty. Well, no, I think Freddie's right. Um, you know, the most recent um, decision uh, on the um, sentence was, I think, uh, around three or four years that we saw just last week that was brought down um, and, and put out from the DOJ. And it was really an interesting experience going through that because we had uh, a hearing in Congress in January, I think of that year, I testified at the hearing on the horse racing bill. Then um, we had uh, this tremendous, tremendous scandal that was related to all of these indictments. I remember my phone ringing and buzzing at like five o'clock that morning. It was down in Florida where they began. And um, that helped the case here. That helped us get that legislation done without a shadow of a doubt. And then right after that, we had COVID hit. So um, it's been something that I think uh, since COVID hit really has gotten overlooked to some extent and people haven't been keeping up with it like Freddie and I have. Um, even Freddie's done a much better job keeping up with the the different sentences and things like that. Um, at the end of the day, the goal is to clean up the sport and get these bad actors out. And I am a firm believer that swift and very harsh punishment is what is needed. And so I'm glad to see this happening. And I hope that the next arrests, indictments uh, and whatnot are 
brought forth soon because the sooner we clean this sport up and especially before the new anti-doping laws actually, uh, well, the, the new anti-doping regulations, I'm sorry, rather take effect in January, they've punted to January 1st on the doping rules. Um, we want to get these folks out of there and give this law an even better chance by cleaning up and getting rid of these bad, bad actors before uh, the new wave starts. Yeah. Is there on... Good. Thank you. Thank you, Fred. Is there a place on HeisaWatchdog.org that lists indictments, uh, arrests, sentencing? Uh, I'm wondering whether uh, there is one place where uh, interested people could go to understand the extent of prosecutorial activity regarding HISA violations. We we haven't put those on our website yet. Um, I think we've had a couple of the articles about specific uh, indictments that came out, but because there hasn't necessarily been an article about everyone, we haven't. That's something we should probably think about adding. Really good point. Freddie, is there a place that you know of, that a central place? Yeah, me. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, I can get that over to you, Marty. Uh, I, I have it all handwritten out, but um, I can put it on a work spreadsheet or something and get it over to you. Probably, 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 probably by the closing uh, next week, that Monday or Tuesday. Sure. Yeah, I, th I think I think your readers would find that that fascinating. Uh, you know, kind of a hall of shame for for violators here. Um, Fred, what is the fan base like right now for harness racing? I know there's some atrophy in the thoroughbred world. Um, are, are people still going in droves to harness racing? Uh, the a answer for that quickly is no. Uh, the fan base is all pretty much gone. Uh, Marty can. Uh, Marty went to Rosecroft Raceway with me, and we, we were pretty much the only people in the dining room. I, I think yeah. the, it was just like it was just pitiful. There were more. There are now more people in the paddocks than there are in the grandstands, and this all results. It's all poor management and not managing the sport properly. Mm -hmm. And it was, know, yes. No, go ahead. I mean, interrupt. I thought you. No, it goes back to like when George Morton Levy opened up Roosevelt Raceway. He opened Roosevelt Raceway after 1940. Uh, harness racing was stalled at that point. It's pretty much about where it is now. And the reason back then was that so many recalls. Uh, they started from you know moving started to have recall after recall after recall, uh, and he ended up you know starting and the starting gate revolutionized the sport. But there's something that George Morton Levy said that's always stuck in the back of my mind. He said this in Sports Illustrated. Uh, he said when he and Bob Johnson decided to go into harness racing, they looked at the sport and they saw that the sport was surviving because many people in the sport loved the sport, but the, the sport was totally mismanaged. And they, he, they felt that if they managed the sport properly, they would be successful. And yes, they were very successful at Roosevelt Raceway. It was the world capital harness racing. Uh, it averaged 20,000 people a night and, until the Meadowlands opened up and you know, caused some competition there. But they totally managed. They pretty much opened up all of the other tracks uh, all across the country. And you know, in New York, it was George Morton Levy who led the whole efforts to open up these tracks. And I do think that if harness racing could get back to being properly managed, uh, I do think that the sport has a chance of survival. Um, without that and without joining HISA, uh, I don't see the sport surviving. Uh, it's just on a spiral turn. You know, I, I have to say, and this is no no pejorative, but when I think of harness racing, having grown up 
four miles from Louisville Downs, where they did have harness racing for a number of years. You know, my image of the average attendee is someone who drives an old DeVille, wears a white leather uh, belt and shoes and a polyester shirt and maybe smoking a, a cigar. Is, is it ultimately a branding problem to some extent, too? What What is being contemplated to maybe make the sport more attractive to a, a younger demographic who doesn't wear polyester shirts like I do? Well, the thoroughbreds have the same problem too. But yeah. there's a lot of the tracks. The uh, fan base is getting old, and they're not really bringing in the younger crowd. I will say that the, on the thoroughbred side, uh, the McKinsey report they came out I think in 2011, and then another recent one about a year ago, and basically outlined a, a blueprint and a plan for them. And the thoroughbreds have been following that plan. Uh, I actually ran for the United States Trotting Association presidency in 2017. And one of the things that I was basically saying in my uh, speeches and stuff was that uh, I was going to adapt what the thoroughbreds have done. They've already spent the money. They've already got all the results of the tests that they've done, the surveys that they've done. All we have to do as a sport is copy it, copy them and piggyback off them. And we have a shot of saving the sport. Uh, I, I was beat terribly. <laughs> they, they did not want me in there. I also stood for the horse rights and, and welfare of the horses, which uh, I think a lot of them are not um, too keen on that. <laughs> so. Yeah, you know, Freddie I, and, and Joe, I, I'll add and tack on to this, talking about the trip when we went to um, Rosecroft last, uh, I think late last year we went, or maybe it was early in January of this year. Um the nine years I've lived in Washington, D.C., I did not know that there was a harness racing track less than 20 minutes away from me here until Freddie told me. And I have grown up around the horses, everything you can possibly think of, been to every type of event and some southeastern harness racing. There's not any gambling there, but I've never been to this type of harness race. And we went. Uh, it was an older um, facility there, but but in in great shape. And I kid you not, when Freddie says we were the only other, there were, I think there may have been one other couple there in the entire dining room with us. And the lady there was the bartender, was the yep. server, was bringing the food out from the kitchen for the buffet. Yep. Literally, Might one have been the place. chef too. <laughs> so. so, I mean, it's like one of these places where you go and you see this one person and that's all they have. And, you know, it was, it was the word I would say is pitiful. It was pitiful. Um, Freddie had me ride in the starting gate. When he talks about the starting gate, the starting gate is a moving vehicle that has a gate, a long gate behind it. And the reason they do that is so that all the horses start at the same time because they're moving in a cart. It's not like a thoroughbred where they're just standing still. And so they, they move forward with the starting gate. And then what they do is they take off and then they leave the horses behind to run because obviously they can't go as fast as the vehicle and that's how they determine the race. But they were very kind to me, very nice. All of the people there were very gracious. They let me see anything I wanted to see. They took me through the facilities. You know, we're basically showing, look, we're, we, we'll let you see anything we're doing. And I cannot say that about some other breeds. I have other breeds, uh, particularly Tennessee Walking Horse people that like to put mine and Wayne's pictures on trash cans. So I will have to say as pitiful as it was, the people were very kind, very gracious and willing to let us see anything and everything that we want to. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to add to that, like Pete Hanley, who's the uh, director of racing there. Um, he basically uh, gave you the tour of the um, paddock. Um, he introduced Marty to anyone who Marty wanted to talk to. 
uh, trainers. Um, you had trainers that were taking your business card. Uh, they were giving you their business cards. Uh, you were able to see the horses in the paddock. Uh, then uh, Lisa watched the general manager. She came over. She spoke with us for a while. She, she was excellent. Uh, and you, you got an invitation to go back anytime that you like. And uh, the Potomac pace is November 10th. And so we'll mark that down on the calendar to go there for that. That's going to be their big race of the year for 100000 So, Well, the na name of the show is Animal Wellness Action. Or that's the name of our organization. Um, Fred, what can listeners do to support the well-being of, uh, well of harness racing? What can they do to help you make the sport better for horses? Well, to, to make it better for the horses... Uh, we need to uh, basically, we, we need HISA. We, we need HISA in there. Uh, we need to put a crackdown on illegal drugs. Uh, we need more enforcement. Uh, the way that they caught everyone in the that was indicted, they didn't catch them through, through drug testing. They caught them through, through uh, videotaping them and surveillance. Um, when they raided them, they had drugs. They, they, testing doesn't really work. Uh, so they have to basically catch them in the act with the drugs, and you need investigators on the ground to do so, and wiretaps. Uh, that, what did Hal say to us when this was taking place? He, Hal, Hal Handel, who lobbied with us, uh, he's a former prosecutor, and he was the, uh, the executive director, I think, of New Jersey racing or New York racing. But uh, Hal said to us, he said, when, he, when the worst thing that the defense attorney wants to see is when they put a video up of his client <laughs> caught, caught in the act. Yeah. Marty, I'll ask so, you the same question. What, what can our listeners do to help the horses when it comes to HISA or any other uh, need they may have at this juncture? Well, I think first and most importantly in explaining that harness racing, as far as the horse racing integrity and safety act, and we should have done this earlier. I apologize. Um, is an opt-in. It's a requirement for thoroughbreds. It's an opt-in for harness racing. And the harness racing industry has not opted in. So I think um, encouraging the harness racing industry and trainers to opt into the Horse Racing Integrity and Safety Act is one thing. But secondly, also call your members of Congress at 202-224-3121 and ask them to support the SAFE Act to end horse slaughter. Because so many of these harness racing horses Standard breads are ending up in the solder pipeline, as we talked about. If we can end horse solder, I think we'll actually end a lot of these horses from being abused in the time that they've left the track, and they'll probably actually breed fewer. I've seen that in every breed across the board since the defund went in place, and the number of horses going to solder has dropped dramatically. But I think as the listeners out there, what they can do is call your members of Congress, ask them to co-sponsor and support the SAFE Act. It's not going to go through the Congress and get signed into law this year, but we have a shot at it in the 118th Congress, which begins in January and will last for two years. Marty, let me ask you this. Is it part of the ROI calculation for owners of either thoroughbred or standard bred vis-a-vis -vis, um, harness racing that they might be able to remunerate through the slaughter of the horses? And because the question came to me when you talked about there being fewer bred is it because that the elimination of slaughter reduces one more potential point of positive ROI for them? Well, I, I think the trend that I've seen is, and and I, I have family members very guilty of this, overbreeding, breeding horses to horses to get more horses, and then they go through numbers 
to see what happens and what's good and what works and doesn't. And if they don't, they shuck them and they end up in the slaughter pipeline. Um, so I think what happens when you see the end of slaughter is similar to the defund is they don't have an outlet for that horse. There's not an end for that horse. And so that has caused a lot of breeders to scale back on what they're breeding because at the end of the day, they do want some good, bad, or otherwise, they do want some place for the horse to end up. And if they don't have horse slaughter, then they can't just easily get rid of that horse. All right. Fascinating. Fred, I'll go to you for final thoughts. Um, in the harness racing sport, you know, the breeding is down drastically. Uh, I guess we're breeding now about between seven and 8,000 horses per year. Um, and if we go back about 20 years ago, we were breeding maybe 24,000 horses. So we've drastically cut back. Uh, we also have an issue going on where they can't fill race cards at the racetracks. So uh, the Meadowlands uh, had to cancel their Thursday card because they couldn't get enough horses in to fill a race card. Uh, so we have what we call now a horse shortage. But uh, the other thing coming up in harness racing, um, we're going to be soon with a driver shortage. Uh, we don't have enough new drivers and new blood coming into the sport. Um, we don't have enough owners coming into the sport. Uh, we have uh, many owners that have left the sport. Trainer, trainers have left the sport. And every single one of them has pretty much told me the reason that they've left is because of the drugs in the sport. And they can't compete against, as they call them, chemists. And so our sport needs the Queen's Act up. We need to get rid of the cheats, and we need to do it now. And like I said before, ISA is the only thing that's going to save harness racing. Do you believe there will be a harness racing in 50 years? Do you think it will still be around? The way that it's going, no. Um, I, I, I think maybe 10, 15 years. Uh, you know, they have the fair tracks, but the breed, you know, uh, they're not getting enough interest. Uh, they're not bringing the younger people into the tracks. And there's a lot of different things that they could do. And, you know, like here in Northern Virginia, you go to the steeplechase races. Uh, these smaller ones have 5,000 people. And the really big one has 70,000 people. Uh, you know, the harness track, you go there, you know, there's 300 people in the grandstand. Uh, you know, the Hamiltonian, our biggest uh, event, is maybe drawing 20,000 people. The handles of the only track that is doing any handle is the Meadowlands and Woodbine up in Canada. But Woodbine does around two two million a night, and the Meadowlands does between two and three million, maybe maybe more. Uh, I think for the Hamiltonian this year they did about twelve million, maybe, uh, and that might be a high figure. But you know the Hamiltonian, in my opinion, should be doing about twenty five percent of what the Kentucky Derby does, so that puts it in the fifty million dollar range, and. It just goes back to the sport being totally mismanaged. And then the people that do want to manage the sport, uh, manage it properly. Uh, Jeff Garrell and Jason Settlemore is uh, COO. They get opposition from everyone else. And it's just like, you know, <laughs> you're heading towards the iceberg. And if you're trying to turn the course and everyone's keeping their dog, they're heading towards the iceberg. Uh, they just will not step up to save the sport. Now, Fred, where can people follow you online uh, what's a good website are you on social media how can people uh, i'm, I'm, I'm on you? social media on, on multiple platforms there uh, roosevelt raceway one uh freddie hudson the other uh but my website is ustrots.com ustrots.com all right well uh, thank you very much I, I really do appreciate it our guest has been fred hudson the founder and ceo of the u.s harness racing alumni association 
And we want to thank all of our listeners as well for tuning into the Animal Wellness Podcast. Be sure to visit animalwellnessaction.org for all of our news and information and to sign up for our news alerts. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter, and we invite you to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, or Spotify. I'm your host, Joseph Grove, and we'll be back soon with another episode of the Animal Wellness Podcast.